Good morning. Andrew and Felicia Davis and kiddos are returning to San Antonio and placing membership with us. I understand that they are at the, our 1030 uh, right here, right now. Andrew and Felicia, can we get you guys to stand? Where are you? They're right here. Welcome. Welcome. Just a reminder, too, that uh, on the, uh, the website is not only a, a complete sermon outline of notes of, of what we're going to be studying this morning and in the weeks to come, but there's also an MPG, Memorize, Pray, and Glorify. It's a, uh, an activity that you can use throughout the week, every day of the week, to reinforce some of the things that we're going to be talking about in this series. And we are going to begin a new series today. Here is the theme statement up here on the screen. All of us make one of us. All of us make one of us. I want you to say that under your breath five times really quickly, okay? Go. All of us. Now here is what that means. As a church, we should be so connected to each other that it looks like one body. We should be so connected to each other that it looks like one body. And here's our theme scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now you, meaning us, the church, are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We might add this from Romans chapter 12. In Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. One of the ways that we understand what it means to be a church is that we are a body. Not just any body, but the body of Christ. We are not a building, we are a body. Now what does it mean to be the body of Christ? Well, what Jesus did in his body when he lived here 2,000 years ago, we as his disciples do as the church, his body. What Jesus did, he continues to do in the church. Which means, as a body, the body of Christ, when the body of Christ is healthy, when the body is healthy, it's as if Jesus is here. When the body of Christ, the church, is healthy, it's as if Jesus did not leave, as if He's here. Now, when you think about the implications and the ramifications of a statement like that, that is awe-inspiring, it is breathtaking, it's astonishing, it's motivating, but at the same time, it's rather frightening. It's a terrifying truth. So when it comes to being the body of Christ and trying to be a healthy body of Christ, how are we doing as the body of Christ in health? Now, we know literally how to keep a physical body healthy. We eat the right kinds of food, lots of leafy green salads. We exercise, we breathe. We take vitamins. In fact, every day I take a vitamin called one a day for men over the age of something or other. You get your sleep. You drink lots of water. And there are lots of things that a healthy body does not do or is not supposed to do that you know, we stay away from in order to maintain health. Like we don't sit down and eat a dozen donuts in one sitting. I mean, you get the idea, right? We know how to keep the body healthy. So how do you keep the body of Christ that is the church, us. How do you keep the body of Christ healthy? Well, that's a really good question. Where the human body may take a one-a-day pill, 
for our church, the body of Christ, to remain healthy, we do the one another passages. The one another passages in the New Testament are the behaviors, the attitudes, the actions, defines what a disciple of Jesus is, and they are prescribed to keep the body of Christ healthy and functional and connected. Now, there are more of these one another passages in the Bible than we can cover between now and Easter. So what we're going to begin doing beginning today and going until Easter is to talk about six of them. Now, we're going to start this morning with a really easy one. Here are the texts. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 34, Jesus is speaking. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another by this. Everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. And then one of the fellows that was there when Jesus said that, that one night at there at the end of, of, of his life, Peter writes at the end of his life, 1 Peter chapter 1, love one another. Love one another deeply from the heart. And then Paul, in Romans chapter 12, part of that passage that Lynn read for us just a minute ago, Paul says to the church in Rome, be devoted to one another in, say it church, love. Now this may be one of the easiest of the one another passages to get our mind around, but it is far from easy to do. Think about our own church context. Think about the obstacles as a church our size faces in loving one another. There are a lot of us on a, on a, a, a pre-COVID pandemic Sunday, there'd be about 800 people inside of this auditorium. And that's kind of daunting at times. We can't know everyone, so why try to know everyone? Or the pandemic hits. We aren't around each other all that much. In fact, when we are together, we're supposed to keep our distance from each other. We are a multi-ethnic church, which means at times that we have trouble understanding each other. We are regional. Our church family is spread over five counties. I don't know if you knew that or not, but we're spread over five counties. We don't live near each other. And then because we're a church made up of people, there is that human factor. You know, we can be very selfish at times, self-centered. We can be petty or we've been hurt, and when we begin to interact with other people, we put the shields up, we put the, the walls up, and there is this invisible barrier between us and other people. Or we have bad definitions of love that we have inherited from dysfunctional families. Or we're just too busy to demonstrate love to somebody else. One of, us that, uh, one of these that I think all of us kind of struggle with is that we would rather talk than listen. And so we talk, 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 and we don't listen really at all, and it creates chasms between us. Or we would rather command someone than to understand them. And then in the middle of all of this is technology. How many times have you gone to dinner in a restaurant and seen a married couple or a couple uh, together, instead of interacting with each other, they're on the phone, and all you hear is, click, 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 and they're texting. Or you see somebody walking down the street, or you see somebody at the office, or you, you know, wherever. You know, technology is such a helpful thing, but sometimes it stands in the way of relationship, and we are not present in the moment. And it is hard to, be, to, to love one another when we are not present in the moment. And yet, 
in spite of all of these, and believe me, heaven recognizes all of them, we are called to rise above these things and to love at the highest level. That is, not to love somebody for what we can get out of them. Love them for their beauty, love them for their body, love them for their money, love them for whatever. Or to love them to a certain point and no further down the road. We are called to love each other as Christ loved us. Now, a definition of this kind of love that we've used in the past, and we're going to use it again today. In fact, we'll use it the rest of our lives. I think it's accurate and spot on. It comes from Dallas Willard. He says this is how you define love biblically. Love is the will to, uh, is when you will the good of another. When you are willing the good of someone else, you are loving them. And that's our goal. That our interaction with each other as we love each other and we interact with each other and that kind of love that is defined by Christ is to will the good, the flourishing, the thriving of the people that sit in this room around us. That's our goal. That's the goal of our church. And it's illustrated for us in a really old familiar place, John chapter 13, washing of the disciples' feet. Now Luke chapter 22 is kind of a parallel passage. And it tells us, Luke tells us, that it's the time of the Last Supper. Jesus is explaining what the bread and the wine of the Passover now mean for people like us. It's wine is his his blood, the bread is his body. And then Luke tells us that when all of this is going on, that there is a dispute that rises among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Now, you know how this works, right? I mean, we learn from our earliest experiences that if you want to get in a fist fight with somebody, all you got to do is say, I'm better than you, to their face. We learn that in the schoolyard. Now, again, we typically think of John chapter 13, story of the washing of the disciples' feet, as a story of service, serving one another, and it is. But first and foremost, it is a story that defines love. It begins with these words. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and to go to the Father. The crucifixion, uh, his, his, his cross is right there in front of him. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. And you know the story. The disciples are arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And they're fighting with each other and arguing. This is just another way of saying, you know, I'm better than you because I'm above you. And Jesus knows that he's about to entrust the establishment of the church, the beginning of the church, to these cats who are arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And that will not do. And so he gets up from the table while they're arguing strips down and wraps a towel around his waist in the fashion of a servant. Somebody that obviously nobody would think is great. And he goes one by one across around that triclinium, that C or U-shaped table, washing their feet. Now sometimes this gets reenacted at retreats, camps, things like that. But washing pedicured feet that have already been washed that morning is not quite the same thing. Think of washing the feet of a homeless person who hasn't been inside a shelter for a really long time in the middle of summer. And so Jesus finishes. He sits back down. He's gotten his disciples' attention. They're absolutely speechless. I mean, they could kind of imagine them washing each other's feet, but he, as Lord and Master, washing their feet, 
that has discombobulated them. And now that Jesus has their attention, he says to them, I have set you an example. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And from there, Jesus says that one of them is going to betray him. He's already told them on multiple occasions that somewhere down the road in Jerusalem, there's going to be a cross, a crucifixion. He's going to die the most cruel death, but he is going to resurrect. He has told them that the, the cross is a reality. Now, having maybe begun to understand some of that in their thinking, he tells them that one of them, that the, the 12 plus Jesus makes 13, the cadre, the cohort, the band of brothers that are walking around Israel talking about the kingdom of God, that one of them is going to betray him, which pulls the trigger for the cross to happen. And what do they begin to do? They begin to wonder who it is because there is nothing. There is nothing in the way that he has loved them in the act of serving them by washing their feet that has given them a clue as to who's going to be the one that betrays him. He indicates that it's Judas. Judas knows that it's true, splits. And Jesus tells them, that he's only going to be with them a little bit longer. And everything focuses to this. A new command I give you. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love for one another is so important. It's the mark, it's the signpost of who we are. Jesus does not say that everyone will know that we are his disciples because his name is on the building. In fact, there are times I think that the Lord and Master Jesus looks down and sees the way that his people treat each other and wishes that they would take his name off the building. It's not in what we teach even about salvation. MacArthur Park's witness to the power of the gospel that changes everything is only as good as its love for one another. Why would anybody believe the message of the gospel, which we say is love, coming from a God who has clearly identified himself as love, that has any power, any impact, any relevance, if we don't love one another? The church, I'm talking about this church, should be the most loving place on earth. And we grow in this the rest of our lives through space and time. And we'll grow, and we'll continue, as we practice it, and as we learn how to do these one another passages, we'll learn how to grow in our love one for another. But I want to give you two really practical things to, to do today, if you're not already doing it. The first one is this. Pray the me out of me. Pray the me out of me. You've got to pray the you out of you, and I've got to pray the me out of me. Love says, you first, me second. 
But we flipped it around. I mean, we, we, we'll pay homage, verbal homage, to the fact that, yeah, love says you first, me second. But the opposite is true in so many circumstances and situations that we find ourselves, it's really me first, you second. My opinions, my wants, my desires, the things I like, you're second. Friends, that's not John 13 love. John 13 love is about getting over yourself in order to follow the example of Jesus who put others first all the time, even to death on a cross. The past uh, couple of weeks we considered prayer. You may remember the theme statement that prayer is about God not getting. To make our prayer solely about getting is to reinforce that it's really about me. And I don't really want to spend a lot of time with God if He doesn't answer my prayers the way that I want. you got to pray the me out of me to make any progress towards loving somebody the way that Jesus loved you. And then the second thing is just two simple words. Do love. Make that the aim of your life. Do love. Now, I, I, I identify with a lot of you. I, I've, been, I've been doing this for 40 years. And there are times when you don't know what to say. And there are times when you really don't know what to do. I get that. A couple of years ago, uh, the staff and I were at a, a seminar that Andy Stanley was speaking at uh, called Irresistible he gave a very simple question to help with this that we'll ask maybe a hundred times a day and a million times over a lifetime. And the question is this. In this moment, in this circumstance, with this person, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? What does love require of me? You know, learning to answer that question each and every day is the beginning of this place becoming the most loving place on earth. And the church should be. The church should be the most loving place on earth. It is a place where people can come with hurts and wounds and find a community of healing. It's where people can experience forgiveness and patience in a way that they will never, ever, ever experience it in the world. There's a, a beautiful story. You know, Sunday, January 27, 1991, Buffalo Bills, first Super Bowl that they're playing in. They're playing in Super Bowl 25. They're playing the New York Giants in this big game for the world championship. Scott Norwood, the kicker, became famous not for a game-winning field goal, but for missing a 47-yard field goal that cost Buffalo its, 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 its Super Bowl victory, Super Bowl 25. In the closing seconds of that game, uh, ball is, is teed up, Norwood kicks it, it's wide and to the right. And in that moment, there were a million cruel, wide-to-the-right jokes that were birthed. 
So the team returns to Buffalo, Buffalo, not with the Lombardi Trophy. And there is a, a, a pep rally at City Hall in the middle of the city of Buffalo. And Norwood is there even though he doesn't want to be. And so he stands in the middle of all of the, the giants around him. He's a kicker, for goodness sake. And the team arrives, and before the program even begins, this crowd begins chanting, We want Scott. We want Scott. And his teammates and the rally organizers start uh, you know, grab him and bring Scott Norwood to the microphone as 30,000 people, 30,000 people cheer him as he fights back the tears. He goes to the microphone and he says, I've never felt more loved than right now. To be loved in victory is to be expected, is it not? To be loved in defeat and failure is transformational. Where do the soul-weary people find rest for their soul? Where do the weak are, where, where are they made strong and the strong are made meek? Where do the timid find courage and the broken find healing for their lives? Where do the disenfranchised find acceptance and acknowledgement? Where do the discarded find that acceptance that changes their life? And where do the lonely find embrace and the wandering find a home? Where do the rich and poor find a seat at the very same table? Where do people of such diverse skin color becomes so unified that it looks like one body? Where do the fallen find a gentle hand that pulls them up off of the ground and to their feet? And where does everyone and anyone experience love defined by Jesus of Nazareth? You know where? It's called the church. It's the body of Christ. And Jesus wants it to be the most loving place on earth. Amen? Let's stand and sing.